Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. So, um, I'm excited about today because today is Christmas Day, and, and it's like we get to have a birthday party. For a king. I mean, there's no better day to worship the king than on the day that we celebrate his birthday. So think of it today as a birthday party for Jesus. That may sound a little silly, but the truth is we're, we're here for the purpose of giving honor, giving worship to this, this person that we believe is the Savior and not just the Savior, but we believe is God made flesh. And so what do you do on a birth, on a birth, at a birthday party? And, and what do we do at Christmas? We, we bring a present, right? We bring a gift. Well, I did a little research this week to find out why we bring gifts, especially on Christmas. And there's, there's a lot of stuff out there, but it seems as though that gift giving on Christmas kind of went from earlier in the month to the first of the year, and then it whittled down to being something we do on Christmas morning. Um, and, and it's usually across cultures and across, across boundaries, but it seems the origin came from the gifts of the Magi, as we find in Matthew chapter 2. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I want to look at that text, and this is a little strange though, because Matthew chapter 2 it didn't happen at Jesus' birth. It, it's, it's after his birth. So we're actually past Christmas morning, so to speak. But it gives us an insight as to why we give gifts. But, but more than that, what his birth really did mean both to you and to the rest of the world. So one little note too. There's this... Bishop of Myrna named St. Nicholas. He was known to be very generous and he was known to, to, be, to be giving gifts to kids. And so St. Nicholas turned into jolly old St. Nick, which turned into Santa Claus. And so that's where that whole tradition came about. So if you're too hard on Santa Claus, just know it came from well, some relatively uh, benign uh, origins. So in Matthew chapter 2... We find the story of the wise men. Now, there's a song. It goes, we three kings of Orient are, right? That song is wrong. Why is that song wrong? Because we actually don't know how many wise men they were. We assume that there were three because they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? But those are just the gifts, and we, we assume that each one brought one gift, but we really don't know. The reality is, it was probably a large caravan of people, because these were wise men. They were magi. They were kingly or priestly in some sort, and so they would have had an entourage of people that would have come with them. So here's the story, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is 
he who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star as it was rising and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them to exact the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was. The star they had seen in its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream that not go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. There's so much truth in this passage, and I only have a few minutes to share this morning. But, but let's, let's kind of break this down into three responses. When it comes to Jesus, there are really only three responses that have ever been and ever will be to who he is. There is either hatred and antagonism towards him. There's indifference or there's worship. If you think about it in our culture today, those really are the same three responses that we can have. We can be antagonistic about Jesus. We can be indifferent about Jesus. It doesn't matter one way or the other. Or we can see him for who he is and we can fall down and we can worship him. Now, a couple of characters in this story as well. The first, char the first character we sing, it says, in the days of King Herod. Now, King Herod would have been Herod the Great. At this time in his life, he was probably somewhere around 70 years old. And he was, he was incredibly wise, or, or maybe not wise, but he was incredibly cunning and crafty when it came to appeasing the people. Because if you'll remember, he did not earn his spot to be king uh, uh, or to, to, to rule in this area. But he, he kind of was given it. And then because he was given it, it was tenuous. He could lose it at any time. He was called by his superiors, Herod, king of the Jews. And you can see why this would be a problem when the wise men came to find the king of the Jews that would be born. He felt very threatened. In fact, he was not only cunning, but he was also incredibly vicious in his reign. He had... His own children killed. He had his own wife killed. He had other people killed. And just before he died, about a week before he died, he actually round up all of the Jewish influencers, not, not TikTok influencers, like Jewish uh, leaders. He put them in prison because he knew that when he died, nobody would mourn his death. So he told his 
uh, his underlings, the people who listen to him, when I die, take these Jewish leaders and massacre them. That way there will be mourning when my death happens as well. And sure enough, those were the the, the uh, those were the orders that were carried out. And so he was a vicious man. The most vicious of him of his acts, though, was that at the end of this story, what we find out is that he sent a decree out that every baby boy under two years old in Bethlehem was to be brought out and slaughtered. Because he was so afraid of this threat to his kingdom. This was Herod. He saw Jesus with contempt. He didn't care about any of the history, any of the background. All he thought about was, I've got to stop this threat. Now, if we really want to pull back the layers, what we can find is that this wasn't Herod's doing as much as it was the enemy, Satan himself, doing this. Why? Because if we go all the way back to the beginning, we understand that the devil tried to usurp God's authority and his power. And God in the very beginning said, no, you'll never do that. And, and if, if you just kind of follow the thread, there was a promise of a redeemer. There was a promise of a, of a king. There was a promise of, rule, of a ruler that came in Jesus. And the enemy, the devil, knew that. And this, I think, was part of his plan to try to stomp that out. Here's a, here's a principle you should know. The enemy is always at work. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. That's why the scripture tells us to be careful that we get too proud when, when things are going really, really well. Because that's the moment at which he comes in and he tries to get us to fall. So Herod hated this idea of a new king of the Jews. But notice in verse 2 that these wise men that came from the east, they came and they were saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? They were asking this question, but have you ever thought about the fact that nobody else seemed to be asking that question? Now, this is what struck me in this passage. How is it that the king of the Jews, how is it that the savior of the world, Jesus, the son of God, could be born and nobody understood that what was going on? It was, and the, their response indicates that they hadn't even pondered the question. So here you have the Savior of the world being born in such anonymity to the majority of the community. He was right there under their nose and they had no idea. It's truly an indifferent response to Jesus. I feel like that is the majority of our own culture today. I feel like the majority of our culture just goes about goes on with their life and they do what they got to do. And they and, and Jesus and the grace of God is right in front of them and they don't even see it. They don't even see it. Even when we herald this good news, they're just totally oblivious to it because so much in life is going on. And I'm not saying that to be derogatory. I'm simply saying that sometimes. People don't even see what's right in front of them. The old saying goes, you can't see the forest because the trees are in the way, right? Isn't it strange that when they came to ask, where is he who's been born of the king of the Jews? 
Herod was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Why? Because they had never heard of such a thing except that they did. Because you go back and he said, where is this king going to be born? And the chief priests and the elders said, well, the scripture says. Then in verse 6, there's a prophecy that's, that's revealed that was in the Old Testament. Here's the cool part about this passage. In chapter 2 of Matthew, four of the prophecies from the Old Testament are fulfilled about Jesus. Four. Now... There are over 300 prophecies about the birth of Jesus and about who Jesus would be. Over 300 of them. 324, 347, it depends on how you look at it. Well over 300. The probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled is one in one and then add about 27 zeros behind it. That's one in eight that one person... Or that, that, that's, that's one in one with 27 zeros behind it. That one person would, would be the fulfillment of eight of these prophecies. Let's multiply that. Remember, there's over 300. Let's say the possibility that one person could fulfill 40 prophecies. It is one in one with 157 zeros behind it. Basically, it is statistically impossible. Statistically impossible that one person in his lifetime could fulfill 40 Old Testament prophecies about him. But it wasn't just 40. It was over 300 prophecies. If you ever wanted to know, is this thing about Jesus really real? You could really stick it on that. You could really go back and say, look, it is impossible that one person could fulfill over 300 prophecies. Therefore, he must be who he says he is. You can trust in that. Then, of course, if that's not good enough for you, just go to the resurrection. Everything is answered with the resurrection. And that's not, we're not at Easter, so I can't talk about that. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. We can always talk about that, right? So this prophecy that's given here tells the Israelites where this king of the Jews will be born. See, they were looking for a king. They were expecting a king to come, but he was born right under their noses. Here's why. They were expecting a king to come with pomp and circumstance and with flair and with, with symbols and all this, this uh, uh, royalty. And yet he came as this ordinary insignificant child and, and, and born to this young mother, Mary, who had a weird relationship with her husband, to say the least. And there wasn't even room, and so they were, 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 were forced to have this child in a, in a, in a, in a, in a cattle store, a, in a, a barn, in a cave really is what it was. So all that we expected or all that they expected was completely opposite. And yet isn't that what God does? Doesn't God use the dull things of the world to confound the wise? And doesn't God use the simple things of the world to prove the complex, incapable, 
That's why your salvation is as simple as it's by grace that you're saved through faith. You can't add anything to it. It's been said Jesus plus anything else leads, cannot lead to salvation. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. But here's the good news. This baby that was born, instead of people being angry and antagonistic, instead of people being uh, just, just uh, totally uh, oblivious to it, there's a third option in that he can be worshipped. Because we don't worship a little baby. We worship this one who is eternal. We worship one who knows, who was, who is, and who is forevermore. If you follow the scripture, verse 7, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them to the exact time the star appeared. And from that, what we understand is it was somewhere within a two-year span. That's why, uh, that's why we know this wasn't at his birth. It was after his birth. So somewhere within 24 months of his birth is when this took place. And we know that because he said, hey, kill everybody under two years, right? That gives us some boundaries there. He said, tell me exactly when this star appeared, because he's trying to get information. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully. And when you find him, come back and tell me where he is so I can worship him. Well, I don't have any idea whether or not the Magi knew that Herod was just trying to kill him. But what I do know is the Bible says that God warned them, don't go back to, the Mag or don't go back to Herod, go another way and go home. So that's what they did. When they went and found Jesus, they found him because they saw a star that was over the place where the child was. So what had happened is this baby was born and then they moved into a house somewhere in Bethlehem. And when the wise men got to Jerusalem, they looked and they saw a star. Now, it wasn't a meteor. It wasn't some sort of North Star. It, was, it had to have been something that was more tangible than that. And so it was right over the house. I guess it would be like a street light would be the best way to think about it. Right. And it was over the place where the baby was. And so they went. And as they went, the Bible says they were overwhelmed with joy. Overwhelmed with joy. In the Greek, if you look at this, this is a way of the writer saying, I don't have enough words to explain to you the feelings and the, the emotions that these magi had. It's this, it's this duplicated, repetitive way of saying it was stupendously, miraculously, incredibly exciting, right? Words that don't even make sense together except that it's all you can do to try to barely express the emotion that's going on inside. That was the response of these wise men. Now listen, the magi were wise men. We call it, we're not like mafia wise men. They were like, like, like uh, very intelligent. They knew science. They knew astrology. In fact, some of them were even into the occultic arts. They were known to be the ones that would, would be able to give advice and wisdom. 
And so because of that, they weren't dumb. They knew things. And yet in all of their intelligence, this truth of the baby Jesus broke through that. And it pricked their heart. And somehow they knew, I think it was the Holy Spirit, they knew that they were to worship this young child. One of the cool things about this text as well is that it gives us Bethlehem as the location. If you do a little Bible history, what you'll find is that Bethlehem keeps circling back in stories in the scripture that have importance. And every one of those stories has a gospel-centered importance as well. You go all the way back to um, uh, Jacob and his wife Rachel. When they were traveling through, Rachel died and Jacob buried her in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the name means the house of bread. Isn't it cool that the one who said, I am the bread of life, was born in a place called the house of bread? In the, the book of Ruth, we find that Ruth met Boaz. And you remember that story? It's the story of a kinsman redeemer. Ruth met Boaz in Bethlehem. In fact, the very fact that she was found and rescued, if you will, or redeemed in Bethlehem should give us a foretelling of what Jesus does for you and for me. He redeems us, right? And if you follow the story a little longer, you have King David. King David grew up where? In Bethlehem. This is where he tended his sheep. This is where he would have been called by uh, his, his father when the prophet came and said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to be the next king. This all happened in the same spot. That's why Bethlehem was known as the city of David. And yet, centuries past that, you have this little baby that's born. I just thought of something. It's kind of interesting that every one of those characters were insignificant in their life until God radically did something in them and through them. If you're feeling as though you have very little significance in life. If you're feeling as though you, you, you don't really have much to offer. Can I just welcome you to the hall of fame in the Bible? Insignificance is where God does his best work. And I think it's because he doesn't share his glory very well. So you don't have to have significance. You simply need to know the one who was born in this little place called Bethlehem. So when they entered the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And as they worshipped, they offered him gifts. Now, they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we don't know why except that those were normal gifts that would be given to somebody that you would want to honor. Gold, frankincense, they were very valuable. They were, they were very costly. And that explains probably 
how Jesus' mom and dad were able to actually pay the bills for the next several years. They could have taken those gifts and used that to live on, to buy a house or to, to, to pay rent or whatever they did, to buy food. And I just, I'm reminded, I don't want to add into the text, but it just reminds me that God meets our needs in strange ways sometimes. And he always does it exactly on time when we need what we need. So if you're here today, maybe, maybe that's just a word for you. Maybe when you got up this morning, you were really frustrated and struggling as to whether or not you had it. Whether or not this thing that you need will be met. Listen, if it's a genuine need and if you've cried out to the Lord and you're trusting in him, you can be promised that God will meet that need. If it, because the Bible tells us that he's a father who meets the needs of his children, doesn't he? But now you've got to understand a need and a want. Sometimes those are not the same. But God is a good, good father. So, a gift. They gave, they brought a gift to present to Mary and Joseph for Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When I think of a gift, though, um, really that wasn't the first gift of Christmas. Really, the gift of Christmas was the gift that God gave to us. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. You know, a lot of reasons for giving a gift, aren't there? Sometimes you give it out of obligation. You know, you go, well, they gave me this last year, so I got to do something good this year, right? I don't want to be embarrassed this time. Sometimes you do it out of honor. And sometimes you give a gift simply out of love. Aren't those the best gifts? What is a gift out of love? A gift out of love is when the person says, what do they need? And what do they want? I believe that when God loved us. And when he gave his only begotten son, he was answering the question, what do they need and what do they want? Do you know what we need? We need a redeemer. We need rescuing from our sin. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible says that you and me, we're sinners. Sinning means we offend the law of God. We don't even have to try to sin to sin. It's in our nature. It's who we are. You don't have to teach a child to take what's not his. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. It, it's in our nature to sin. And so what we need is a redeemer. We need someone to make us whole. But what we want. What we want ultimately is a home and a family. Every human on the planet wants a home and a family. Well, Bible tells, the Bible tells us that God has created a home for us. It's not here. This is just like the appetizer. 
This is like the, the hors d'oeuvres, right? The home that he's prepared for us. He told us, he said, I've prepared a place for you. You can't even imagine what it's like. That's why when we struggle on earth, we, we can be frustrated and we should, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too disappointed because we should know that if this earthly tent we're living in is destroyed, we have a place that's built not by human hands, but by the hands of God himself. It's a place truly that words cannot describe. What we really want is a home, and what we really, really, really desire is a family. Because a family, a family is a place where you're safe. Family is a place where you're loved. A family is a place where there's refuge and where there's hope. Can I just tell you folks that what you get when you enter into the kingdom of God through by grace, through faith, through Jesus Christ, you get a home and you get a family. Turn, turn to the person next to you. That's part of your family. You're part of the biggest family on the planet. In this family, you've got every culture, which means there's going to be lupia in heaven. Praise the Lord, right? Enchiladas. Tiki masala. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but really, if you think about it, because God's family encompasses the entire world who know Christ Jesus, all of those, all of those cultures are melded into one family, and it's the most beautiful, diverse family on the planet. That's what God's design is, by the way. Not only is it a large family... It's a family built on the principles that a family should be built on. Love and kindness and generosity. In fact, if you want to know what the family of God is built to be like, look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what it means to be part of the family of God. So, for God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever, red, yellow, black, or white, they are precious in his sight. Whoever would believe on him, that's that faith part, would not perish. Perish means to die and to live in death for eternity. Would not perish but have everlasting eternal life. And that is the offer that you are being given today. Today, if you've not ever trusted Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that. Receive the gift. You know, for a gift to work, you've got to have a giver and a receiver. Now, I know what some of y'all are going to do. Some of y'all are going to pull out your wallet and say, okay, how much I owe you? How, how much is that gift? I can walk 10 old ladies across the street tomorrow and I can, I can go shopping for my, my, my neighbor and, and uh, I can give gifts to the poor. How, how, much, how much do I owe you for the gift? Now, this morning when you get a gift from your family member and you pull out your wallet and say, how much do I owe you? What are they going to do? After they slap you, they're going to be offended. Why? Because it's not a gift that you've bought or earned. It's a gift that's freely given because they love you. The gift of God cannot be bought. 
cannot be sold. It can only be received or rejected. It's your choice. If you close your eyes and bow your head with me for just a moment. <clears throat> As we are at the end of our Christmas celebration for Jesus. What is your response to this Christ child? Is it antagonism, hatred, bitterness, anger? Is it indifference? Just doesn't affect you one way or the other? Or is it worship? This morning I pray it's worship. Just take a moment in your heart of hearts and just perhaps thank God for his incredible grace extended to you. See, only you know what you really were. Only you know the depths of your own heart and even then to only to a point. But what if God said, I love you. In spite of that. In fact, if I could be so bold as to intrude just a little bit into your life and say, I believe that a lot of the struggles we face in life come down to the fact that we don't really believe that God loves us. We, we think that his love is conditional because it's so ingrained inside of our culture. I love you if. When you get to the point where you know God loves you in spite of you, That he's pleased with you. That he longs for you. That's when you really understand God's grace. Father in heaven, I pray that as only you know how. As only you can. Would you open up our hearts and open up our ears to understand and receive your grace today. To know the depths of your love. Father, yes, we deserve judgment. Yes, we deserve hell. Yes, we deserve punishment. For our sins bear the weight of that. But oh God, you have redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. You have made a way where there was no way. May we rest on that side of the gospel.
Just take a few moments in the silence. Say to God whatever it is you need to say to Him. Imagine that He, you, and Him are the only one in the room. And when Matthew starts to sing, I want to invite you to stand and sing as a response to the goodness and the grace of God. The decision needs to be made publicly. I'll be here at the front to receive you. Otherwise, let's just, let's just offer him this gift of worship. Just like the Magi did.